0: I came down, as I always did on Thursday, and I was praying to the Lord. And, uh, and I did what I often do on Thursdays. I began to begin to pray about the things that I was going to be writing about that day. And as I was praying about those things, it just weighed heavy upon me that it didn't seem to match what was going on. Maybe at least in my heart, in the world, just didn't seem to match in some ways. So we've had a long two and a half, three months, haven't we? some of the strangest of our lives. And on top of this, again, just this past week, we saw those videos of George Flood begin to pour in. Yet another African-American man that suffered and died unnecessarily and unjustly. And that, of course, is not uh, removed, but just a couple weeks from the videos of the unjust killing of Ahmaud Arbery. And it was these videos that kind of came in that... uh, uh, as I was sort of praying about them and thinking about them on that Thursday, not even necessarily intentionally doing it, they just began to flood upon me. I began to get wearied by these videos because uh, it's not the first time we've seen these videos. Um, matter of fact, maybe it's because it hasn't; these weren't the first time we've seen these videos that they began to be just sort of press in on me all the more. It made me to feel tired, made me to feel angry, made me to begin to feel, if I was being honest, a little bit hopeless, We saw the video in Central Park. And then, of course, all the riots, the the peaceful protests, the good things, all the stuff that we've seen have begun to play out over the course of the week. And on top of all of this, as you heard Joey pray just a moment ago, we've been seeing how this coronavirus has been disproportionately killing minority communities in our city in particular, African-American and Hispanics especially. And that, of course, that disproportionate killing of those minority is due in part, in part, because of the economic disparity that exists amongst those communities. And that economic disparity exists in part because of the historic and current injustices that have shoved them to the back of the line. And also, on top of this, because this virus began in China, we've seen an uptick in the already existent racism towards those of Asian American descent. And in addition to all of these things, as has been happening on these morning calls in the Psalms, we've been seeing, I've been seeing, maybe in ways that I haven't before, just looking at Psalm after Psalm after Psalm, about how often the Psalmist is crying out for justice amidst being treated unjustly. That's just been coming out time and again as we've walked through those Psalms. And then in addition to all of this, I, uh, as we often do, reach out to some of the minorities in our church just to see how they're doing amidst all of this. And quite a number of them responded to me um, saying how tired they were, how in some ways fearful they were, how discouraged they were. And so maybe it may be helpful for some of you to know that uh, one-third of our membership, one-third of our membership is non-white meaning that community in our in the life of our church is feeling these things more than the rest of us and so all of these things kind of began to press in on me that thursday as i was praying and so again it wasn't just the george floyd thing it wasn't just the riots that came out of it it was the compounding of all of these things that we've been experiencing over the past three months and even beyond that i couldn't shake loose of it that th- thursday morning as i was praying and so uh, I reached out to the elders. I told them how I felt. I shared with them that I simply didn't feel comfortable preaching on anxiety uh, from Luke twelve twenty-two to 34. And I want to be clear, I could have done that. I could have done that and it wouldn't have been wrong. In fact, I'm confident that while it wasn't the thrust of the passage, Luke twelve twenty-two to 34 would have been helpful for us to hear. And Lord willing, we'll think about it next week. But the heart of that passage, I didn't feel in the moment fit where we are in this moment. And so after praying, uh, I decided to adjust the schedule and do something we haven't done in the 10-plus years of our church's history, change things on the fly. Um, And we are now going to be taking a look at injustices and, by extension, racism from Genesis 16. Uh, I think it's normally right, to be clear, to stay on that calendar because... I believe that the Holy Spirit is at work in the days that we prayer those schedules. Just as much as he's at work, the Spirit is at work in the days in which things are happening. But nevertheless, in the irregular times, it's possible that the Spirit would redirect us, and I trust that that's what's happened in this passage. So again, we're going to be taking a look at Genesis 16 to help us be oriented to the heart of God as it relates to injustices and relate racism in particular. And I want to be clear about something right here from the get-go. My intention is not to teach white guilt. Right? In other words, my intention is not to make you, if you are white like me, to feel guilty because you're white. No, that's not helpful. That's not biblical. God made you the way that you are, and you should be thankful for that. That's not the intention of this uh, sermon. The point here is to see the heart of God and what is not the heart of God so that we might then reflect the heart of God as God's people that's the point so go ahead and turn there if you haven't already Genesis 16 Genesis 16 first book of the Bible if you're not familiar with scripture Genesis is the very first book it's it's anticipating the arrival of Christ Christ has not come yet he is a long way off at this point it's awaiting or anticipating the arrival of Christ And so here we are, Genesis chapter 16. We'll look at the first six verses to begin with. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant, It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. And so after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress Two points this morning, here's the first. God's people are not passive or prejudiced. God's people are not passive or prejudiced. And we see there in verse one, we've got these two characters, these main characters here, and Sarai and Abram. These are the same two people that will later be called Abraham and Sarah. Uh, and we know that these two are married as the text tells us and we also know that abram was given a promise by god at the age of 75 that happened in verse chapter 12 and chapter 15 at the age of 75 abram was given a promise by god that from his offspring from his descendants would be a people as many as the stars in the sky that happened late in life at the age of 75 they had had no children up until that point Um, sarai believed that she was barren uh, and we have every reason to believe that she was right about that. Sarai believes, and probably correctly believes, in verse 2, that even though the Lord promised to give children to Abram and to her, that the Lord had closed her womb. And so we see later that 10 years have gone by since that promise. 10 years they've been in the land of Canaan, in the promised land. The promise that God made to give them a people of numerous as stars in the sky And yet, they're getting older, and still not one child has come. And so Sarai does what a lot of us might be tempted to do, kind of create her own plan, go around the plan of God, not be patient with the hand of God, but instead create her own plan. And what she does, as we read here, is she attempts to force the hand of God by taking her African servant, the Egyptian Hagar, And she reasons with Abram to conceive a child with her so that she, Sarai, might have a child from her. And I want you to notice, take a look at verse 3 again. Do you see how the narrator goes out of his way to bring about all these specific information? Ten years have gone by since they've been in the land of Canaan. Sarai is Abram's wife. That's the second time we've heard it in this passage so far. She took Hagar, the Egyptian, also the second time we've heard the Egyptian heritage is mentioned. Hagar is the servant of Sarai. Sarah gives Hagar to her husband as a wife. That's the third time their marriage has been brought up in the passage. So if you're reading this and you're hearing this and you're going, this is all very strange. This is all very odd. This doesn't sound right. If you're feeling that, that's what the narrator wants you to feel. That's the point of the passage. This is strange. This is not the way God would have it to be. And so Abram, we find, does what his wife asks him to do. She does, He does treat Hagar as his wife, and she conceives. We find there uh, that Hagar then begins to look upon Sarai with contempt. The word there in the Hebrew means that she is short with Sarai. In some way, shape, or form. That, of course, is not okay, but then again, more importantly, neither is the way that she was treated, nor the way that she was treated before and after. Sarai begins to get upset because she feels, in some ways, apparently lesser than Hagar because she's able to conceive and have a child, whereas Sarai is not. And it seems that Sarai's insecurities come in full view, even though Sarai is the one that created this whole thing, she engineered all of this herself. So she goes and gets Abram, her husband. She gets mad at him. She begins to threaten her husband. And that gives rise to those words of Abram in verse 6. Note the presence of the word you there three times. Behold, your sover- servant is in your power, do to her as you please. So, men, that is a perfect example of the failure of biblical leadership in the marriage. That passage perfectly represents that. And might I add, that's the second time we've seen failure of biblical leadership in this passage. Abram is passive. The predominant failure of most men, passivity. Abram should have never agreed to this relationship in the first place, this plan that was outside the hand of God, as we see in the very next chapter. The Abram wants Ishmael, as we'll talk about, to be the child. And of course, the Lord says no. So he was passive. Abram says to his wife, in essence, when she comes to him angry about how all of this has happened and how Hagar's treating her with contempt and all this, Abram says, in essence, I don't care. Do whatever you want to do with her. She's your servant. I don't care. Just go on. Passivity 101. Right there. That then fuels Sarai's already existed anger. She then goes to Hagar and treats her so terribly that Hagar runs away. Now, I believe that we could say here that Sarai treats Hagar unjustly. It's not racism per se, though that seems to be lying close beneath the surface, given the fact that Sarai is not, sorry, that Hagar is not of Sarai's lineage. And also, this is her servant. We might even say her slave. But regardless, Sarai's behavior we see here is prejudiced. It's prejudiced. She uses her position as a mistress to Abram to treat Hagar like she's a piece of property. She treats Hagar like a piece of property by making her go and sleep with Abram. Did you notice, by the way, Hagar's voice is never represented here. This is all something that Sarai wants to do for herself. She tells Abram to go into my servant that I may that I may attain Obtain children through her. And then she says, Sarai took Hagar and gave her to Abram. And in so doing, Sarai treats Hagar unjustly because Sarai did not dignify the full humanity of Hagar. She treated her again like a prostitute, like a piece of property to just use to get what she wants. She treated her like an oven to just sort of use to get something she wanted. And then after everything came out and Hagar does treat her Uh, in some ways with contempt, she ramps up her unjust treatment to Hagar. Hagar, of course, runs away because of this untrust treatment. Now, guys, I want you to think about something, this notion. I want you to think about the implications of Hagar's running away. Hagar couldn't just hop on a bus, the next bus that came down, and go hop over to the next town and find a job. That's not the way things worked. Hagar knew that when she ran away. Hagar was directly dependent upon Abram and Sarah for food, for safety, for security. And so for her to decide to leave and go into the wilderness was in essence for Hagar to choose risk losing her life over staying in that position. That could tell you, that should tell you something about how bad Sarai's treatment of Hagar was. It was not in keeping with the heart of God, as we will see. And so Sarai's prejudice and Abram's Abraham's passivity served to de-dignify Hagar, a woman that is made in the image of God, so much so that she'd rather risk her life than stay there with them. A woman, again, created in the image of God, and as we know, uh, there's a child that has been conceived that is also created in the image of God. They cast her aside, Abram and Sarah cast her aside as though she's nothing, Abram used her and ignored her. Sarai thrashes her. And meanwhile, Hagar is riddled with pain and anguish. Just try and imagine how different things would have gone had Sarai and Abram waited upon the plan of God. Imagine what, had ha- what could have happened had they not treated Hagar so insincerely. So much pain, so much hurt, so much destructiveness could have been saved, but Abram just look the other direction. And his passivity served to fuel Sarai's brutality to Hagar, a woman who was already in a state of vulnerability as a servant. Wilberforce says that a private faith that does not act in the face of oppression is no faith at all. And so what I'm going to do in terms of application here, friends, my... My job this morning is not going to try to lay out with a great deal of specificity what we're supposed to be doing. At this point, all I want to say is this. I I want to say that doing nothing and being prejudiced, both of those are not options for Christians. We learned a couple weeks ago from Jesus talking about these hypocrites that take the name of Christ, that act as though they are in Christ, and yet they stare into the face of difficulty, of injustices, and walk away. You remember the parable of the Good Samaritan? Jesus taught that there. These people are prejudiced to the point of treating other human beings that don't look like them so poorly that those same people would rather die or respond in kind to their oppressors. Neither of these options, friends, are options for the redeemed. Passivity, prejudice, violence, these kinds of things, not options. We as Christians, we reject passivity and we reject prejudice at every level. And that is because of what we see sort of happen in Scripture and the storyline of Scripture in Genesis. And that's also because of what we believe about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christians are the one group of people that should understand justice and injustice better than everybody else on planet earth. We understand, we see eternal justice satisfied in Christ on the cross. Where Christ was satisfying the righteous requirement of the law for sin. Jesus satisfied the just righteous penalty of the law for our rebellion against god in our sin and this is ultimately then you should know this is ultimately what is behind all of the problems in our world this notion of sin jesus comes in to satisfy that as a just sacrifice satisfying that penalty but this is what's behind sin is what's behind all the problems in the world i thought about this yesterday we were watching that uh rocket take off into outer space There was apparently some uh, drone on the back end of that thing that was able to fly back to the same place that they took off from. Amazing. And as I'm watching this, I begin to think, how is it that we can create these amazing things and yet we can't simply love our neighbors? It's because sin is far more than the intellect. It's far deeper, which is why it required the just penalty of Christ's coming. And while Christ did this, satisfying the just penalty for the law, he did this as offering himself as that just penalty. He also suffered himself unjustly. Jesus did. Jesus was innocent. He had done no wrong. And yet he suffered. All these videos of people suffering unjustly should remind us of Christ, who is the preeminent example of unjust suffering. We as Christians should know that deep down. Therefore, we should, as I said, care deeply about justice and unjustice. We should understand those two concepts very clearly. But I also want to be clear, in the midst of the fighting for justice, we must keep crystal clear that the true worship of the risen Christ has to be preeminent. In the work of justice, evangelism must be at the tip of the sword against injustice because to help someone out of their unjust suffering and not plead with them out of eternal suffering, is not to love them in the fullest sense. We must love the person enough to pull them up out of the suffering here on earth, but all the more as Christians, we must call them away from the suffering of hell that everyone deserves. But also, since God has revealed to us the heart of justice by suffering unjustly, and since we see what happens in scripture like with Abram and Sarai, and we have the power of the gospel within us, we cannot join the throngs, friends, that see racism or know that it exists and say with Abram, that's your problem. You go deal with it. We cannot say that. It's not an option. Nor is it an option to participate in prejudice of peoples as Sarai did. Because prejudice is not ascribing the worth of human beings as those created in the image of God. So to look or think ourselves better than anyone else is not to understand the heart of the gospel, where Jesus gave his his life for all image bearers that believe on him. And what we find, actually, when we turn to the end of Scripture, is that Christ seems to be all the more magnified because of the myriads of nations that are at the foot of the throne. That's what we read about in Revelation 5 and 7. That's so preeminent. There seems to be this kaleidoscope that causes to magnify the glory of Christ all the more. Scripture seems to affirm the beauty of the myriads of different peoples. Scripture does not in any way uphold one kind over another because God made all human beings in his image. Therefore, to be prejudiced against any human being in any way is not to obey the gospel. So again, passivity and prejudice are not options for Christians when it comes to matters of injustice and racism in particular. Because of what we see play out in Scripture, because of what we see in the Gospel. But what does that mean exactly? Well, as I said, I'm not going to give specifics as to what we ought to be doing as it relates to passivity and prejudice. The reality is we cannot do everything. Not everything that we see is an ought. However, we can do something. We must do something. Something. At the very least, it means, beloved, educating yourselves and those around you about matters of injustice and racism in particular. At the very least, it means that. It is the blight of our nation's story. At the very least, it means that we're educating ourselves. At the very least, it means educating our children if we have children. I've had more conversations with my boys about these things over the past few months than I have in times before maybe i should have had those before but i'm constantly helping these boy, my boys understand these things i think that's part of my responsibility as a parent but also it means at the very least that we're praying that we're praying against injustices and we're praying for justice to come and i should note when we pray as you heard joey do we wanna pray for this publicly in corporate gatherings when we're able to gather, even virtual gathering. I read one from an African-American pastor who I admire deeply, John O, talk about the fact that if you want to know where our church stands as it relates to racism, don't just listen to what songs they sing or even what they might say in a pulpit. Listen to how they pray. And so we're gonna pray. The least we can do is pray. We can educate ourselves, we can pray. And thirdly, I think the least of what we can do is we can create a culture here in the life of Jesus's church that reflects no passivity towards injustices and reflects the fact that we're not going to be prejudiced towards one another we, we build a culture in the church that reflects that and i'm thankful to say i believe on the whole that's in place at this church as i've reached out to a number of our minority members in the life of our church one of the things i think almost every one of them has said to me is how encouraged they have been by their white brothers and sisters reaching out to them and loving them through this but we can't ever get comfortable in that. We have to stay at that. We have to even promote it even more. It's not as though we've arrived. We've got a long way to go ourselves. We are to welcome people from equally from all tribes, tongues, and nations. And in fact, we should know, since there's probably there's, there's one third non-white, that means there's two thirds that are more white. right? So that means that we need to make sure, as I remember what Thabiti said when he preached when I was on sabbatical. I loved what he said. Those of us in the middle have to reach to the edges and bring them in understanding that, that it might be difficult for them to come into a church that has two-thirds white so we ought not ignore people that don't look like us but we should get to know them and love them and encourage them and pray with them etc and we should call one another out in the life of the church we should call one another out when we see clear and indisputable evidence of prejudice or passivity we should call each other out and those kinds of things that's exactly what paul does to peter in galatians 2 when he's removing himself from Gentiles when the Jews show up. And if it isn't clear, if it isn't clear and indisputable that these people are being passive or prejudiced, might I encourage you, beloved, believe the best about people before you conclude the worst and get to know them and ask them questions. And if it's true that they have, call them away from passivity and prejudice. And if I could just paint a vision for you for a moment, can you imagine if every Gospel loving church did just that. Just try to love their neighbors and encourage this notion of no passivity and no prejudice in the life of a church under the gospel. Tried to pray often about these things, tried to educate ourselves. If we just did that, what might happen in the world if every gospel loving church did just that? But as it is, many churches coddle racism and injustices by being like Abram and being passive or by being like Sarai and being prejudiced. But not us, not at this church. We will not be passive, nor will we coddle prejudice because of how God has loved us in Christ, which leads me to the second point. In Genesis chapter 16, verse 7 to 16. Take a look there. The angel of the Lord, this is referencing Hagar, the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, and so she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly, I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well was called Beer Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. First thing we said this morning is that we must not be passive or prejudiced in relation to matters of injustice. Secondly, here we see that God sees, hears, and deals with matters of injustice. Reading verse 7 there, guys, with a biblical imagination should break your heart. Try and imagine the scene a vulnerable, pregnant Egyptian woman away from her home, so poorly treated that she runs into the wilderness. She's parched, it seems. She's found this spring of water and she sits by it to get some water, presumably. Perhaps she's weeping when she does. We don't know. And I love what the text says there. It says, and the angel of the Lord found her. It's as though the Lord went looking for her in her affliction. And he asks her about her situation. It's not this, as if she doesn't, he doesn't know about this, but Hagar says she's running away from her mistress, Sarai. And then we get this strange response. The angel of the Lord says to go back to Sarai and submit to her. And we might be led to believe that the Lord was being harsh himself in doing this, were it not for what comes next. Where it says, I will surely multiply your offspring for that they cannot be numbered for multitude he goes on behold you are pregnant and shall bear a son and you shall call his name ishmael and if that sounds familiar to some of you that are familiar with scripture there's very similar language to how the lord was speaking to ishmael or to abram this blessing this word of blessing but don't miss that word because don't miss that word because there in verse 11 Why is the Lord being so good in this sense, blessing this Gentile servant woman? Why? Listen. Take a look at it. Because the Lord has listened to her affliction. Because the Lord has listened to her affliction. He calls her to go back into the affliction, but he offers her a blessing because the Lord has heard Hagar's affliction. And we find in verse 13 that Hagar is so encouraged that she names the God that she saw and met. She names him the God of seeing. For truly I have seen him who looks after me. Abram wasn't looking after her, but God was. She eventually bears that son and she names him Ishmael. Ishmael means God hears. God hears. Beloved, this is the God of the Bible. For God's children who are in affliction. Listen to me. For those of you that have been mistreated, those of you that have been abused, like Jesus, the angel of the Lord we find here leaves the 99 to go and get the one that has been mistreated. He blesses her in the midst of that affliction since he is the one that looks after his own. That's what Jesus does. That's what God does. He looks after his own. I can't imagine the pain and the grief that Hagar felt. I mean, I'm sure, right? I'm sure Hagar felt alone. I'm sure she felt alone. But after this visit, I'm sure that she never felt that loneliness again when she looked into the face of her son. Because she knew. She knew God heard her affliction, God saw her affliction, and God blessed her amidst that affliction, which gave her hope, which gave her a future, which gave her a son. You know, I can't help but wonder what it was like the first time when she went back and Sarah was awful to her again. I can't help but wonder if Hagar was able to kind of deal with that much better because she knew God heard that. God saw that. God was working it out, because she concluded that God saw God heard, God sees this affliction. And so to you, beloved, that is likewise that has likewise been mistreated, likewise been abused, likewise been on the receiving end of racism, be it small or great, to you, my African-American and Hispanic brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm speaking to you. For those of you that have been followed around at retail stores. For you that have been pulled over unnecessarily. Maybe just because of something you were wearing. The color of your skin. For you that have been made fun of because of something. For you that have been, had people look at you or even spoke to you in a way that was derogatory or prejudiced. Or when someone you loved heard about these things that happened to you and they did nothing like Abram and just turned the other direction. And maybe that happened by the church itself. The church just turned the other direction and didn't care. Didn't even mention it. To you that in the midst of these you feel as though you're alone. That nobody hears, that nobody sees. God sees. God hears your affliction. We learn that from this passage. I understand, beloved, that sometimes you feel alone, but you're not. You're not alone. I know that sometimes you feel out of place, but you're not. Take heart. You're not. You're not alone. God sees. God hears your affliction. He sees it. He's willing to find you out in it. You are loved by the God of the universe. He hears. He sees your affliction. He will deal with it. He is ready to bless you in the midst of it and i also want to address my brothers and sisters of asian descent for you that maybe don't feel like you have a place for you that because of the of where this virus began people have made you to feel unclean because of the way that you look since it came from china listen god sees god hears your affliction He is prepared to bless you in the midst of that affliction and he will make it right. The heart of Christ is drawn to the disenfranchised. He's drawn to the neglected. He's drawn to the outcast. We've seen that through Luke, haven't we? Jesus says of his disciples, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will be with you to the end of the age. He even says, I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, there you might also be with me. And so while you may feel alone, listen, you're not. While you may not feel at home here, listen, none of us should be. None of us should feel at home here. We were made to be at home with him. And he is prepared to bless you, to give you a place where you finally feel at home a place where you finally feel at ease, a place where in that home you finally feel loved and heard and seen. That's Jesus' promise to you, beloved. God is not absent. Christian sufferer of racism or other injustices, he is so moved by the sin of the world, the injustices of the world, that he not only sees it, not only hears it, he even entered into it freely to overcome it entered into the affliction he not only sees it not only hears it entered into it so as to show you how much he loves his people this is what john three sixteen is all about right for god so loved the world how did he love his world how much did he love the world by sending his only son who freely entered into affliction in order to overcome it To show you. See, God's coming in. Jesus is coming into the world. His incarnation reveals you that God does see. God does hear. God does intend to deal with the injustices. And it shows you that he does so in love. It shows you because he entered into it all freely and willingly. I mean, just think about the life of Christ. Jesus was lied about constantly. Jesus was unnecessarily policed. Jesus was made fun of from where he was from. Jesus was taunted by his enemies because they thought, he was, they thought they were better than he was. And again, he didn't have to enter into any of that. But he did so freely because he wanted to show you to know that God hears affliction. God sees affliction. God is willing to enter into affliction as an unjust sufferer himself so that he might be both, Jesus might be both the just and the justifier of the one that believes. He, Jesus, was just because, again, he satisfied the penalty of all of the sins of those that trust him in the cross and in the resurrection. And he, as he satisfied God's justice for you that believe, he then is the justifier because he can declare you righteous in him, clean. He is the just and the justifier. And then for those that repent and believe on him and justice is satisfied and then you're counted just, For all those people that happens, he collects those into little colonies of heaven in the country of earth called churches. So that when these churches come together and they hear God's word prayed, sing, read, and ministered to, they are reminded, though not perfectly because they are not yet home, they are reminded of God's love. They're reminded of God's grace and mercy. And it sort of pulls them along as we march our way towards the new Jerusalem. In the church, that's what we do together. We offer ourselves as counter messages to the rigors of the world so that we might learn what the world was supposed to be like. So that we might learn what the world will one day be like. And so take heart, beloved, for while you have tribulation in this world, Christ has overcome it all. And the reality is, the blessing of Abraham is being accomplished and it will come. We will have a city in perfect harmony. Perfect harmony of all nations, tribes, and languages. Perfect harmony. A day, a city of justice. Complete and perfect justice. A day of, as I've been praying a lot, shalom. That country is real, and we are marching towards it. That day is coming as sure as the sweetness of sugar, beloved. May it give you hope. May it give us all hope as we live in these strange days. The reality is that every person in our city right now, in some way, shape, or form, is longing for justice. Everybody is. Everybody's longing for unity. Everybody's longing for healing. Everybody's longing for harmony. Everybody's longing for love. Everybody's longing for the absence of this virus, which, again, is nothing more than a longing for the overcoming of death. And we have the assurance of all of those things. We're the one people that knows all of those things. We've tasted them already. We know that they're true. The stuff that everybody wants, we see in Christ and in his people. And so therefore, may we then do as the Lord told us, as we wait for the consummation of all things, as we continue marching towards the new Jerusalem, may we do as the Lord told us. May we do justice. May we love kindness. And may we walk humbly with our God. Which is to say, may we not be passive, may we not be prejudiced, and with the power of the gospel and the hope of heaven in our hearts, may we go to the hopeless in the world and offer them the hope of Christ, and may when we go to minister to them that are uh, being treated in some ways wrongly, may we go to them and tell them about the Jesus that was suffered, he was the just and the one that also suffered unjustly, may we tell them. And may we tell them about about the fact that that Jesus sees and hears that affliction and Jesus is bringing it about. May we tell them that as people of hope. And lastly to you, friend, that wants that Jesus that didn't have it before this live stream began. For you that have been watching this stuff and you're so incredibly hopeless, somebody invited you into this or you stumbled upon this place and you're watching this strange man talk about these things and you know that there's something in you that wants this stuff we're talking about. Listen, don't let the day go without reaching out to the person that invited you to this and ask them one simple question. Will you tell me more about this Jesus of justice and this hope of a world that's full of justice? Ask them that and let them walk you through the joy of Christ. And if you don't have someone to contact, contact me. You can find my contact information on this website and I'd be more than happy to tell you about the God that sees and the God that hears affliction and the God that's making it right in Christ. But I leave you, beloved, I leave us as the church with that reminder that we are sojourners, that we are exiles, and we are walking home. And soon enough we'll get there and it'll all be made right. But until then, may we suffer well and may we look to the God that sees and hears for his glory and our good. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we praise you as the man, the only man that was truly just. We praise you that you suffered unjustly so that we might be counted just. And we praise you, Jesus, because you overcame in the cross and in the resurrection that we now that believe can have sight of a city of justice and of joy. Oh, God, give us grace to persevere in these difficult days with hope of heaven in our hearts. May we do just as you commanded. May we do justice. May we love kindness and walk humbly with you. And God, for those that are suffering, remind them of this passage that you see, you hear affliction and you will make it right. May they see Jesus that is the perfect example of all of these things, the promise of all of these things. Give us grace through these difficult days. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.